Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. Well, it was about eight years ago, church, that something incredible happened to me on a very particular morning. It was a very average, ordinary morning. I'd woken up, gotten out of bed, got dressed, um, got my coffee. Very average morning. I drove to work, and um, as I walked up to the work truck, I threw a few playful insults at my workers, as was protocol. And uh, we were just very average morning, and we're sitting there loading the work truck, and then I hear something behind me. I hear screeching tires coming into the parking lot. And I turn around, naturally, and there's my wife kind of fishtailing into the work parking lot and comes to a screeching halt um, in a terrible parking position. And I'm looking over there and I'm thinking, huh, what's this about, you know? And the dummy I am, I'm just sitting there staring and my worker kind of nudges. He's like, hey, you should go over there. It's like, oh yeah, huh? So I walk over there and I'm thinking, I'm like, what's up? What's, what's going on? And as I approach, I can visibly see my wife as she's getting out of the car, she's kind of shaking. And I, now I'm really thinking a thousand things going through my head. Somebody's died. Um, something's, something's up. And I get about eight feet from her. And we, we stop and we kind of look at each other. and It's like a battle stance almost. And then she holds up this stick. It's about six inches long, made of plastic, little pronounced plus sign in it. And if you're a parent, you know that uh, it's a pregnancy test. And she held it up, and I'm sitting there looking at her. And a thousand things went through my head. I was... It was joy, it was confusion, it was all of those things that go through you when you find out you're going to be a parent for the first time. And um, everything that I thought I was going to be thinking about that day, everything that usually occupied my mind um, throughout the day, my worries, everything changed from that moment on. I still had to go to work, I still had to do my daily responsibilities, but my mind was elsewhere because I had a second win for living. I had a second win because a new life was emerging. And so tonight, guys, we're going to be getting into God's Word. And I think the perfect scripture that, that kind of encompasses this idea, this whole concept, is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And at the end of verse 10, it says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of your Lord is your strength. And what happened in the context of this particular verse is God's chosen people, Israel, through generations of sin and disobedience, had lost God's message, His real message. And they got gathered together in one place where they were read God's words, and it clicked. And they got it. And the result of that was, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is our second wind. So today we're going to be looking at three simple but crucial aspects of a called life that will result in a second wind that will boost our understanding, our endurance, and our joy. So these three simple puzzle pieces, I'm going to read them all to you now and then we'll go through them throughout the study. Number one is understanding who God calls. Understanding who God calls. Number two, how we respond to God's call, how one responds to God's call. And number three, 
how to abide in God's call. How to abide in God's call. So again, number one, understanding who God calls. Number two, how one responds to God's call. And number three, how to abide in God's call. I think if we can really grasp these three these three aspects, I think that we can have joy that takes us to the next level. So let's get into it. Understanding who God calls. This might seem very simplistic at first. In fact, a lot of you already have this settled in your heads. I hope most of you do. But believe it or not, many do not understand this idea. They, believe it or not, this topic is still debated among people. And there's two reasons that I've seen. We're going to look at two examples. Number one is... God could never accept me. When we go to Grace Campus, the homeless shelter, we go out there and we talk to these people. And we, uh, we give them drinks and stuff, of course, but we sit down and we listen. And a lot of times they'll feel comfortable with us and they'll start to admit things they've done to us. And they'll say, could God really forgive that? Could He really forgive me? There's no way He could accept me after these things that I've done. And I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that, not just at Grace Campus. And my answer is the same every time. As long as there's breath in your lungs, it's not too late. It's not too late as long as you're still alive. Oftentimes you'll see the joy just like visibly lift off their shoulders, or the, the weight uh, vi- uh, lift off their shoulders, excuse me, when they understand and have the joy of that, that um, reality. So... That's one. Number two is there is actually a teaching out there where they say that God has looked into the future and predestined only certain people to be saved. Not everybody's saved. Some people um, are just born to go to hell, basically. And I know it's crudely stated, but that's basically what they teach, and this is not right. And the root of this teaching actually claims that there's no free will um, in regards to salvation. We're just like robots. And the sad thing, the sad thing is this teaching is actually kind of convincing when they put it in the shade of certain scriptures. They'll quote Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. See, God predestines people, they'll say. They'll put their entire focus on the letter of the message And look right past the whole point that was being made. And if you'll recall, did Jesus not run into this just head to head with the Pharisees constantly? So we've got to, it's it's so important we study God's word so we can spot false teaching even when scripture is used to promote it. So let's get into God's word now. Our first point of topic, who God calls. We are going to visit a uh, hidden gem in the Scriptures. Many of you might not have uh, heard of this one, but I think it illustrates very well what we're talking about. So if you'll please turn with me to John 3.16. John 3.16. Do you all even need to turn there, honestly? Do you think, you think on three we could just do it? One, two, three. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know this verse. The world knows this verse. Unbelievers know this verse. We see it behind the goalpost sign. We see it everywhere. And it's pretty simple, right? For God so loved the world. The world. It didn't say, for God so loved some people. 
some people that he predestined into the future. It says he loved the world. Jesus died for humanity. Ever since Adam and Eve exercised their free will against God, God, in his love for us, predestined Christ to pay the penalty so that we might have again what Adam and Eve had with him. Face-to-face interaction with our Creator. A perfect and holy environment of communion with our God. And as as I think about this, this whole idea, back when Adam and Eve first sinned, I always think about, have you ever seen these shows where there's a drug addicted son or daughter and a parent has been enabling them to stay in that condition because um, they're, they're letting them live at the, home, at the house or putting gas in their car, food and all this stuff because they love them, they love their kid, but, but they're drug addicted and they're enabling them. They have to uh, come to a point at some point and they say, you know what, I'm killing my own, my own child. I have to draw a line. And they, they have to look at them and they say, I want what we had. I want to embrace you, have that purity, that unity that we once had, but not like this. Not like this. And I know God never enabled Adam and Eve, but He is a holy God, and we also must be holy. And He did that through Christ, and He predestined all of that from the beginning. The minute Adam and Eve made that move, God was already building a bridge When we look at the Bible, guys, we see so many examples of the patriarchs, the prophets, um, the disciples, the apostles. These are the heroes of the Bible, right? We say, of course God called them. Of course He did. They're the heroes of the Bible. But we forget that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the things that are not to shame the things that are. It's how God gets the glory. That's precisely how He prefers it. So let's take an unfiltered look at actual people that God has used. Four out of the twelve apostles were fishermen. Y'all know this. Um, I would compare this to like uh, a farmer or a truck driver, right? Bringing food to the market. Matthew was a tax collector, like someone from the IRS. Naomi was a widow. Jacob was a mama's boy. David was an average shepherd boy. Timothy, really young. Abraham, really old. God uses such diversity. Ordinary people. And one thing that I noticed as I started looking at all of the people, all the heroes, the so-called heroes we see in the Bible, is that uh, they have a common denominator. And I don't know if y'all know that, but it's they were all available. All of them. It's not, I've heard it said, it's not that God is so much interested in our ability, but our availability. And I found that to be true. It's like Isaiah who said in Isaiah 6, 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And God said, Go. You have the heart. You're available. Go. So God uses ordinary people, people who are available for Him. God calls us all. The question must now be asked, and this leads us to our uh, second section, is how God is calling him uh, people to himself is, how do we respond to this call? Sorry, tongue twister there. Number two, how do we respond to this call? Now, I want to give you all a little side note before we jump into this. I think it's worth mentioning. Um, one of the biggest reasons that people do not respond to God, uh, him calling them favorably, is they think they have to become something. They have to um, work themselves, mold themselves into this image of a Christian. They think they have to do that themselves. 
And let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Do we consent to these changes? Do we make efforts? Yes. And repentance is something that needs to happen immediately. But repentance is not about you changing yourself. That's behavior modification. We've heard Pastor Ben talk about this. True and pure repentance is very different. And we'll discuss this a little bit more in a minute. Next, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we will, we will start getting into this deeper. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus calls out to Matthew the tax collector in the middle of a day's work. And how did Matthew respond? Let's read it. Luke 5, verse 27 and 28. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. That's Matthew, by the way sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. This phrase, he left all, left, the Greek word for left is katalipo. That's a fun one to say. That means to desert, abandon, or forsake. And the Greek word for all is pos, which means all. So it's pretty simple. No no loss in translation there. He left, abandoned, deserted, forsook all, got up and followed Jesus. But not everyone responds like this, do they? As we all know, if we've tried to share the gospel with people in our lives, people we run into, oftentimes they say, "Mm, no, no thank you, no thank you. And I find it very interesting. In Psalm 14.1, we know this verse pretty well. It says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And oftentimes we use this for like atheists. Somebody who says, um, I don't believe that there is a God. And they're fools too. The Bible says so. But this verse actually, when you break it down in the uh, original language, the Hebrew, it says the accurate rendering of it is, The fool has said in his heart, no God. So there is, is in brackets. It's just assumed. The fool has said in his heart, no God. And the idea there is like, say when you go to a restaurant, you go and you order your main course and you eat it and you're stuffed. And at the end, you get the famous question from from the waiter. They say, would you like dessert? And no, no dessert. I'm full. I'm satisfied. That's the idea here. So the fool has said in his heart, mm, no thank you, I'm, I'm satisfied, I have all I need. So that's, that's really interesting. How many have you heard respond like that? They don't want any part of God. They don't want it. And God's Word says they're fools. People will come up with the craziest excuses for why they're not about organized religion, why they don't pray, why they don't, Um, read their Bible on a daily basis, or the biggie, why they don't contribute money to the spread of the gospel. If God's God, He doesn't need our money, right? Heard that so many times. I'll think a little deeper on that. He's He's given us a duty. They get really defensive when you confront them on, and I'm speaking to myself here too. I've been this way in the past. You get really defensive um, when someone confronts you about a simple fruit that should show up in your life if you're really born again. If you're really born again, you should have these simple fruits. 
And don't be mistaken, this defense mechanism, it's carefully thought out. It's carefully thought out either by the person who is trying to run from God, like Jonah, or it's, pers- it's carefully thought out by spiritual forces behind the scenes that take advantage of the apathy in a person's life. Let me repeat that. It's either carefully thought out by them trying to run from God, like Jonah, or it's carefully thought out by the spiritual forces behind the scenes that take advantage of the apathy in a person's life. That's something to chew on. So what does it look like when somebody responds to God's call? This is an easy one. It should be. There's changes, right? There's changes in their life. You can see them. Some of these changes are gradual. Some are pretty quick. But you see them. There's changes. The New Living Translation says in 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24, Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you were now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. I like that verse. As we mentioned earlier, many don't want to respond to God's call because they feel like they have to change themselves into something. They have to become this thing. But Paul says here in the Corinthians, you just come as you are. You come as you are. And this should take a lot of stress off of us. It really should. Because how often do we find ourselves trying to become something? We're trying to um, mold ourselves into this image that we're trying to, to portray. So how we respond to God's call is crucial. Remember the rich man that came to Jesus and he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked into this man's heart, and he answered him according to this man's heart, which I find fascinating about Jesus. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So we see two types, don't we, then? Those like Matthew who abandon, forsake, desert everything, and those like the rich man who cling to earthly possessions. Guys, we've got to be fully committed as Christians. We have to. We can't be lukewarm. This doesn't necessarily mean that we have to give away all of our money at all. It's okay to have nice things. It's okay to have things. Unless, that is, it's robbing your heart from God. This commitment is about your heart. How we respond to God's call is foundational. And it's not, it's not a cookie cutter type of deal. Peter John Corson wrote, There will be King Saul's in your life, men and women, that will say, do it the way I would do it. Here, wear my armor. But if the armor doesn't fit, don't wear it. Not out of arrogance, but by God's grace, I'll do it my way. And I love that the way God is calling you personally to do it. 
what one person's calling looks like might be completely different from the type that God has called you into. But the one thing, the one thing that unifies us all as God's children is Christ alone. Don't ever forget that. Not anything but the sacrifice given through Jesus Christ. Let's be honest. A lot of us would never play golf together, would never, you know, talk with one another because we don't have much in common. But we have one thing in common. And that one thing is the reason we're all in this room right now studying God's Word. And we spend so much time together. How awesome is that? Think about that too. We have one thing in common. We spend a lot of time together. When you respond to God's call in acceptance and repentance, your name is written in the book of life and the gates of hell cannot separate you from that love. Y'all should know that. So let's move on to the third part of a called life. Number one was who God calls, and that would be everyone. Number two is how we respond to God's call. We need to accept it, right? And now number three is how to abide in God's call. How to abide. I would say that accepting, responding favorably, or accepting God's call would be the most important decision you could ever make in your entire life. There's no doubt about that. But number two, number two would be to abide in God's call. The Greek word for abide is meno, which means to remain or to stay. So let's think about this for a minute. Let's use the example of marriage since the Bible uses it so often and it's the like perfect example for what we're looking at here. A couple gets married. They say their vows at the altar. You know the routine. For better, for worse, in sickness and health, uh, rich or poor. And the preacher says, I now pronounce you man and wife. We've all come to know this ceremony as a wedding. But I don't think that a wedding means a wedding anymore as we've seen in the divorce rate. The reason is commitment. Commitment. And you know what is another word for commitment? To abide. To remain. To stay. If you're truly committed to your spouse, for better, for worse, sickness and health, all those words, then you will naturally abide with them. You won't come home after the honeymoon and say, well, tie the knot. Now, um, dinner better be on the table, clothes washed, dishes washed, my feet going to need rubbed. <laughs> yeah, you are gagging. It's not love. Seriously? Or stretch it out even further. 20 years down the road, the wife comes to her husband, do you love me? I said it 20 years ago at the altar, didn't I? That's not love. That's not love. Your desire to abide will manifest in selfless actions toward your spouse. You will care about how they feel. I might even compare this word abide to the Bible itself. We've all heard Pastor Ben use the example that uh, the Bible is shallow enough for a child to play in and deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And that's just like the word abide. To abide is both simple and complex. It really is. And you know, the Bible puts some really heavy weight on this word abide. In fact, the word abide is used in the Bible over 38 times in relation to salvation, faith, and works. That is not a factoid that I pulled from a book. I actually counted those, and I stopped. There's probably more than 38. 
So let's break down the word abide real quick with two different scriptures. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And the next one's going to be John 15. Those are the two scriptures. 1 John chapter 2 and John 15. 1 John 2 verse 24. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Faith. Believing in what you heard from the beginning, that's faith. And then John 15, verses 9 through 10. This is Jesus speaking. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Keep my commandments, Jesus says. That's works. And this should remind us of the Scripture in James chapter 2, 14 through 14-17, which says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith equals belief, works, action. You might say that the word abide has a dual nature. Okay. Now, I want to give you a little disclaimer about how I worded all of that because that sits really icky with some people, the way I just worded that. Many will get really excited about how that sounds because now we can make a checklist and we can put things on that list of which we can check off that can ensure our salvation and boom, we've got some serious works here, right? Careful now. That's what they did with the law. That's what they did with the law. Was the law bad? No. Paul says, the law showed me my sin. But that's what they did with the law. Let us never do that with the gospel, Christians. Let us never do that with the gospel. Let's see what Jesus is actually saying here. I believe many people have a distorted idea of what these commandments, also known as works, actually are. Jesus seemingly has a lot of commandments as we read the Bible, especially chapter 5 in Matthew, right? He has a lot of things that He says. But in the context of John 15, just two verses down from Jesus saying, keep my commandments, He tells us what these commandments are. And it might surprise you. It surprised me. It changed my sermon. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Love. Isn't that interesting? We're talking about commandments here, and Jesus drops the mic by saying to obey His commandments is to love as He loved. Aren't commandments supposed to be things that we do? Right? Actions that we do. Well, we do things for love, don't we? Jesus makes this real simple in Mark 12, 30, 31 with the greatest commandment of all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. 
The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. To obey Jesus' commandments is to love. The Apostle John, toward the end of his life, he started to obsess over this this central idea, which is love. He would say, little children, children, love one another. Love one another. Remember, when all else fades away, all else crumbles, these three things remain. You all know this. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. 1 John 3.18, New Living Translation says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. We reveal our true love for God by what we do. I know how that sounds, how that's worded. Dual nature. Not working for our salvation, guys, but it's a commitment. It's a commitment to our God. These works, also, you should know, are not something we muster up. These works, we don't muster them up. Yes, we consent to the changes happening in us through the Spirit of God. But this love, these works, that's the work of God in us. That's Him. Because don't you remember how you were before Him? It's God that does these works in us. We consent. We allow the Spirit to change us. And here, here guys, is an important thing to write down. If these works you find yourself doing are a burden then something's wrong. That should be an indicator that something is wrong. Number one, either you need to sit down with God in His Word and you need to do a heart check. A serious heart check too. Not one of these you know, formulated heart checks, but a serious heart check. Or number two, the works are out of place. The works are completely out of place. Imagine when Leonardo da Vinci was sitting down to paint the Mona Lisa. It's like the most famous painting ever. And he calls his understudy over there and he says, hold the color palette for me as I paint this masterpiece. And he's dipping his brush in it and he's painting it. And what what an honor to hold the color palette for da Vinci. But imagine if that same young man dipped his own brush in there and reached up and said, let's do a little shading here. Let's do this. Can you imagine the look? He would get. Don't try to help God out. The works might be out of place. I see this at work a lot. New uh, young men will come on my crew and their number one thing they're trying to do is help me to make a good impression. And I'll give them a task. I'll say, go do this right here. Do this. I want you to accomplish this. I'll be very specific. And I'll find them later doing something that I'm trying to do And I didn't ask them to do that. And they ruin it because they don't see the whole picture. Don't try to help God out. Sometimes we're doing works for God that He never asked us to do. You'll find no lasting satisfaction in doing those kind of works. And as you grow in the Lord, you'll find that that the works that you're doing for Him are very natural and you have peace about them. Let's take a look real quick at faith and works, what they really look like, historically speaking. Historically speaking. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, if you've got your Bible handy. Chapter, uh, verse 20. Luke 6, verse 20. 
Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and he said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast your name out as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Notice here that Jesus turns to this crowd of people, people who everyone else considers at best average and at worst worthless. And he gives them the greatest news that anyone could ever hear. He says that they are blessed, that God has a great reward for them. A reward so great that hunger, sorrow, persecution, hatred, all of life's unfair realities won't be considered in the shadow of the blessings that God has in store for them. And what effect did this have on these people, historically speaking? We can see this in our history books. It's the reason we are here tonight. What happened after Jesus, our God in flesh, came down and bestowed His Spirit, the second wind upon humans. What happened? They changed the world forever, didn't they? They did. Did the nation of Babylon change the world forevermore? How about Alexander the Great? Did Alexander the Great change the world forevermore? Or the great nation of Rome, who lasted a thousand years, everybody says is the greatest nation ever to be. Did they change the world forevermore? Granted, there were some impressive flashes in the frying pan. But they did what anything left to its natural processes does. They faded out. But what God did through Christ, that was something that didn't fade. It was never meant to fade. It will not fade. It's already lasted a thousand years more than the great Rome. And it will never fade. This kingdom built in the hearts of the believers is being progressively carved, shaped, melted, refined, tested into the perfect image of Christ. A kingdom that will be physically seen when the time is just right. And we, as Christians, are a part of that. We are a part of that. Listen, I know that there are things in our lives that demand priority. We've got house payments, car, car payments, uh, children we're providing for. We have debt that's overwhelming, toxic situations that occupy our thoughts. I know we have a lot to deal with. And you might say, Steve, trusting in the Lord looks great on paper, but these issues, they're here and now. I'm dealing with these in a very real way. And they demand my undivided attention. I get that. I understand that these things have a priority in our lives. But remember that our living and active God fights for us. And while He may have us in a waiting period right now, He has us right where He wants us. In Acts 17, it says that God knew where you would be born, in what nation, in what time period, everything. He knows you personally. And He has you right where He wants you to grow. Are there some things that we go into that, that are consequences of what we've done? Yes, absolutely. 
But God has you right where He wants you as you come as you are, and He takes you from there. So trust in the Lord. And remember that muscles must be torn to rebuild, to grow stronger. When our perspective is recalibrated, as we grow in all of this, we rest in the Lord. Because we're a part of an unshakable kingdom. We're a part of that. When we understand that we're not just playing church, guys, playing Christian, keeping up with the spiritual Joneses, when we understand that this is very real and we're actually part of something much bigger, we'll start to get a, a second wind, a second wind when we really start to grasp this. This energy is the Holy Spirit. I don't want to sound new agey. The Holy Spirit is a person. But you get a second wind with God's Spirit, with God's mind. You become one with Him. We are the bride of Christ. And the Holy Spirit can not only comfort us, but it should revive us. It should revive us. The Holy Spirit can be very present in our lives, or it can be barely there. It depends on how serious you take your relationship with your Creator. It really does. But to be honest, if you really, if you really want to take advantage, and maybe that's not even the right phrase, but if you really want to enjoy um, God and the joy of your salvation, you've got to get used to letting go of your tight grip on the steering wheel and letting God direct your path. Not ignoring your responsibilities, but letting God prioritize them. So number one, guys, know that you are in fact called. Every one of you, you've got breath in your lungs. You are called by God Almighty. Number two, respond to Him through faith and obedience. Number three, abide in the Lord. That's the sweet spot. It really is. When we abide, that's when we have the most joy. Even in the midst of hard times. God wants us to be thriving in His Spirit, and we can. When you abide, you're going to find direction for your life, the peace of God, and most importantly, God Himself. Don't admire great Christian examples that you hear and read about. Become one. Become one. Not in your own strength, but in God's strength. But you have to abide. So let me start to close, guys. Let me give you three pieces of application that will help you abide more in the Lord. Number one, talk. Talk with God. I'm not going to use the, pray, the word pray because people put the word pray in a box and, and it, feels, it feels that way. But find a place where you can be alone with the Lord and pour out your heart your concerns, your worries, your regrets, like you would a friend. A friend, because God is your friend. He is there, right next to you. This isn't a fairy tale. Talk with God. Venting to a friend often relieves stress, and believe me, God is a whole other level than a friend. Do that with God. Talk with God. Number two, pay attention. There are two things to pay attention for here. Number one, make sure that you have some sort of daily Bible reading commitment. Even if it's not um, 
the one-year Bible, if that feels too much or whatever, make sure you're reading God's Word on a daily basis. Because God speaks to us through His Word. He really does. He can, he can speak to us. We might have read a, a passage a thousand times, but we're going through something and it lines up so perfectly. God speaks to us in His Word. Make sure you're reading it. Pay attention to things that jump out at you in the pages. And number two, pay attention to spiritual signs throughout your week. Ooh, he's getting Pentecostal. No. No. Pay attention to spiritual signs throughout your week. God can speak to us through people. He can speak to us at the grocery store, at the gas station. You'd be surprised. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. It's in the Bible, guys. God has spoken to me through people. We've got His Word to check it against if you're worried. But God can speak for spiritual signs throughout your week. And number three, don't forget. Don't forget that God has you right where He wants you, like we just talked about. No matter how unbearable things may seem, no matter what you're going through, things you're dealing with that nobody knows about but you, He will not forsake you. He hears your prayers and He will answer your prayers. He has great timing. So my encouragement to you all tonight is this. Lift up your head, Christian. Because Jesus is right around the corner. But while we wait, while we wait, take advantage of the joy of our Lord which brings us our second wind in life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this night. I thank You for my brothers and sisters that have gathered here. I thank You that You speak to us in Your Word, Father. And Lord, I pray with all my heart that every single one that is listening right now knows that they are called by You our Creator. You've been working on this since day one when Adam and Eve fell. Father, I pray that Your Spirit moves in a way that they respond to Your call in their life. They say, yes, I believe that Jesus came to this earth, God in the flesh, died for my sins and rose three days later. I believe. I might not understand it all, but I believe and Father, teach us to abide. I can't help but think of, yes, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help us, Father. You know us. We are broken vessels. Teach us. Show us. Let us always remain humble in listening to You. We love You, Jesus. We pray You never... Allow us to be tempted, Father, as you say you want, whatever we can handle, that we put it all in you. It's a new name of Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you, or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. 
To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.